Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Deaf Thing podcast, where Nicola and Sean, wait, where the hell is Sean today? I don't know, but hey, with me today, I have an amazing and actually very interesting guest uh, called Carl Hughes, who as of right now is the CEO of Draft.dev, which you'll hear all about it. Uh, I'm very excited about this because honestly, I think that even I want to ask you a lot of questions and I think I can learn a lot from you. And therefore, I hope that our audience will do as well. So without any further ado, Carl, um, please tell us a bit about yourself, right? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Nicola. And I want to say y'all did a podcast episode on like technical writing at one point, but it was like years ago. I was digging through the archives. I was like, dig through the archives when I get on like the show. Yeah. I'm like, I'm going to pull something out. And I was like, it was really interesting because uh, uh, this is like an area that I think a lot of engineers don't really have exposure to writing much. And so it's kind of cool that y'all have already thought about and talked about it some. So maybe we'll, we'll jump off from there and keep going. Awesome. Cool. Definitely. Yeah. We are definitely going to come back to that. As but I'll, I'll introduce myself to answer yes. your question. Apologies. <laughs> I've been getting sidetracked already. Okay. So uh, yeah, my name's Carl. I run a company called draft.dev, as you mentioned. I, before this was a, which is more relevant to your audience, probably day-to-day work. I was a software engineer and then a CTO at a, a couple of small startups here in Chicago. So I got to go from first engineer to building engineering teams, which was really, really fun and interesting. And then uh, COVID hit and I decided I wanted to change my career path entirely just for the heck of it. And so I decided I would start writing. Uh, I started off, I grabbed five or six companies that I had like met people at before. I asked them, hey, would you like if I wrote some blog posts for you? Would you pay me? They started paying me. They told their friends and they told their friends. And within probably six months or so of starting draft.dev, I had started, I kind of like, you know, put up the shingle, made us into a real company. And I had like started hiring other people part-time and um, by it's gone from uh, it's, it's been crazy this year. It's gone from me writing a few articles for five or six, six clients a year ago to, we have eight full-time staff and 130 writers who are all part-time all around the world. And so it's uh, a real operation. We work with over 50 companies to help produce technical content uh, it's written by software engineers for software engineers. So it's it's educational in nature. Typically, it's the kind of, it's it's interesting deep dives into different technical products. Maybe it's like a deep dive into Docker networking or something like that. Or it's a tutorial on how to solve a specific engineering problem. The stuff that, um, you know, you're like, if you're a technical company, you want to write out there, but it's really hard to to get your engineers to, to dive in and, and spend that time. And so some companies outsource bits of that or pieces of their, their technical content to uh, companies like us. Awesome. Okay, great. Uh, you did cover a lot here. So I'm going to go back to the, I was an engineer. Here's a fun fact that I like to say, never trust a manager that was not an engineer before, right? Uh, <laughs> I agree. Here's a specific question that I want to ask is uh, at that point when you like actually had teams, what was your most or the biggest number, amount, not amount, Biggest number of people on the team that you led? Yeah, so I was leading like teams of five, six people directly, and then would end up kind of like tying into a lot of other teams. Like at a small startup, what's interesting is that you kind of get to touch a lot of things, right? So one of the fun things is I'd get to sit in on the meetings, like the marketing meetings, because they'd have tech questions. And I'm the only tech person who's like qualified to answer them. And so like, I get to sit in on marketing meetings and be a team member there and then lead my team of engineers and then the, the sales team meetings sometimes. And so like, I remember like being at startups, like that was what was really fun to me was 
getting like to see where my engineering got applied in the real world. And I think you, you kind of miss that at most big companies. Uh, awesome. Awesome. And here's, uh, um, I want to see your perspective on it because that hit me unbelievably hard. Uh, well, in my career, quote unquote, when you came or went from an individual contributor or IC, as they like to so, uh, call it to an, you know, director, I assume at some point, yeah. what was the biggest change or, you know, oh my God, if I only knew that biggest learning from that period, right? Because I would assume at that point when you have like five, six, what, you know, yeah. how many people you, at some point, this is going to come as a shocker to a lot of devs out there. You stop coding. Oh my God. It doesn't yeah. I was going to say that was, that was the biggest uh, change from a day-to-day perspective was that like my calendar, even with just a, you know, a small team would get full of meetings and requests for like unblocking people and like all the million other things like I'd have to maybe I'd get pulled into a difficult pull request because it was something that I was the only one who had touched long ago and things like that so like my day was very rarely was like getting like deep work in it was like I had to block off my calendar (laughs) Uh, yeah yeah I mean I I I actually think one of the things that I did as I started draft.dev was I I got intentional about this. I started blocking off my calendar into sections. Of like, I do want to actually have some deep work time every week, even though it's not as much as it was when it was, you know, just me writing some articles. It's still like a, a valuable part. I've learned for me, it's like part of what I need to stay psychologically you know, healthy in a way. And so I, I still schedule it out, but it was, it's really hard as a manager. If you don't, if you're not intentional about blocking off time, it can be really hard to let it get eaten up by all the different Slack messages, email messages. The emails never stop, right? Like the, it's amazing the pace of email, even in a small organization. Yeah, uh, cool. Since we, you know, actually didn't do a podcast episode in a while now, also an update from my end to all the listeners, uh, listeners out there. Like my life changed, not you know, like people would say three sixty. Well, no, then you're at the starting point. So actually, one eighty, where from like you know, hardcore dev, the you know, the code runs through your veins. The guy that now manages 30 plus people, right? Oh my God. And no, Nicola has not pushed a production line of code in more than a year and a half. Yeah. Take that as you may, but honestly, tell me when. Like when. If you look at my calendar, it looks like a freaking jungle, right? And the rest that you talked about, it's real, right? And then again, you have to balance that out. So for me personally, the biggest problem was from the individual contributor to them you know like a team lead blah 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 but really at the director level where you're like okay how am i doing am i really you know bringing some value or not because as a developer if you will if you know you're using kanban scrumban or or scrum or whatever it is you know everybody likes to say oh we use scrum (laughs) oh really are you right then you ask them well you know what ceremonies are you doing and they're like what ceremonies exactly Anyways, not to digress. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other topic. <laughs> right? Then, then it is, uh, if you're an IC, you know, okay, last week I've closed 10 tickets. This week yeah. I've closed two. Something's wrong. Boom. You've got this quote-unquote yeah. immediate feedback of a week. Well, good luck having that as any type of a manager. You will yeah. not. Well, if someone quits, oh, there's a feedback there. But that doesn't happen well, the greater resignation and everything, but also not real that conversation, right? Oh, it does. It, it's so true that that missing feedback loop is really hard. It's really hard to, and because you can't get a like one-on-one with your boss every week when you're a manager, because they're just as busy as you, you know? So you can like, there isn't a quick turnaround on feedback. And, and even like the, um, 
the creative release that you get when you're writing code, you know, like, yeah, you kind of miss that when you're a director. I did. I, I missed that moving up the ranks. Like I missed the whole, like getting to write some code and seeing it work, seeing a test pass. Like, so that gratification, like, I, I don't know if y'all still feel that. I feel that even when I get to do side projects now. Yep. That's why I will always say, okay, no matter, you're not doing production code or whatever, because yep. there are way smarter people now at your team architect right. level, and you will never get to their level because, you know, you, you just, right. you've chosen the wrong path. You're never getting exactly. There. <laughs> but if you on even, Hey, you know, a lot of people will hate me for this, but even after over a weekend, you don't kind of like pick up a read a new blog or try it out. Yep. Please tell me why are you in this industry for real? Right. Are you a true dev or not? Right. So anyways, yeah. So, okay, cool. Okay. This is, this is great. And again, so tell us, this is maybe the experience that I don't have. So like currently a VP of engineering, but like yeah. you said, CTO. So how does that then like this literally jumps from like, you know, at the regular yeah. world, still you're kind of like reporting to someone, but what at the CTO level? There's like yeah. technically no one quote unquote above you. What then? Yeah. It looks, it's interesting. It looks different at different kinds of companies and sizes of companies and industries. Right. So um, I've because I'm in a, a CTO club, a breakfast club here in Chicago. And so I get to meet a lot of other CTOs and compare notes on these things. And at some companies, the CTO can be a very like uh, more of a technical architect or overarching like kind of system level thinker who's just saying like, what technology pieces do we need to fit into this pie? On at other companies, he's more of a uh, what I'd call like a business side executive, maybe more of like thinking about the like almost financial person in the, in the technology space. Who's just saying like, what's our AWS bill from last month and how do we cut it in half over the next month? So it can vary quite a lot. And uh, that's, that's just kind of, it's basically just a way though of saying like, this is the person who's kind of the final call on technical matters in this organization and usually has some sort of co-reporting over to the other C-level and, you know, likely director level and VP level people as well. So it does depend. I think, I don't think there's like one standard answer, but in my experience, it was like a lot of crossover meetings. Again, this kind of goes back to like what I was saying is like, I'd get pulled in to, to like talk to the marketing team on technical questions. Cause like they need to know what kind of software is possible to build. And it's hard for them to get that by going down to a low level engineer because they get too low level of, of an answer. So there's kind of like a, a need for this, like, bouncing between the different departments in a tech company and saying like, here's what I think is possible and reasonable and something that would fit with our roadmap that we have, you know, slotted out for the whole tech team. Awesome. I think that's a great point because also the people that I've talked to, it's almost uh, like that quote from Anna Karenina, all the happy families are happy the same way, all the unhappy are unhappy on their own way, right? So it sort of applies, right? Where I heard CTOs doing actual coding as well. I'm like, whoa, wait, what? On the flip side, right, I even heard that they're not even technical. And I'm like, oh, my God, yeah. why, why the T in the CT, right? Right, so right. It's a mix, really. Um, yep. But it's good. Hey, I love it that, uh, again, this is the benefit. I never liked big cities. And again, there is a big downside to that. What, what it is, like the, the obvious one that I see, well, the people similar to me, the people that I would like to hang out with, live in Zoom, yeah. not in yeah. real life, right? Yeah. I can't go and meet those kind of people, even though, totally. yeah, I do have like run a local meetup. Yeah, but you don't have a lot of, you know, similar level, if you will. And again, this level stacking, whatever people, let's put it like this. 
people that have to solve similar problems. Yes, exactly. That I was going to say, that's how I would define it too. That's a perfect way to put it. People who solve similar problems. And it's nice when those people are not at your same company. So you can like talk the real shit with them. Like we're, I think this is one thing that is really tough when you live in a smaller city, or if you maybe don't go out of your way to go meet other engineering leaders, if you get into a leadership role and now your, your peer engineering leaders, the only people you can talk to about this stuff, you can't get super real with them because they work with you. They're like kind of competing with you in a way for like performance in the next job level up or whatever. So like, there's a bit of like a wall there you have to keep up. But what was amazing for me when I joined like the CTO group and I'm now in groups like this for entrepreneurs who start businesses, it's like, I get to meet peers who it doesn't matter if I say something out of line, like they don't care because they're not in my business. They're not my customers. They're not my, my peers in that way. So I think it is really helpful. Like my wife is going through this right now, candidly as well. She became a manager. She just switched from uh, being a physical therapist to a managing a physical therapy department, which means she almost she almost does no patient care anymore. And same feelings that we had, it was disorienting. She's like, I don't know what I do anymore. I don't know where my time goes. But it, you know, one thing she's been working on is finding like other peers at other hospitals that have similar roles that she can kind of you know talk about these things with because. It, there's just it's hard for people who aren't at that same spot in their career to understand what you're what you're going through. Love it, and uh, I think the perfect term for that is mastermind group, which was coined. I think, yeah. don't quote me on it. Napoleon Hill back in 1920 something, <laughs> right? It could be. Sure. I'm not sure. I think it was right. Because yeah, with whom are you going to bounce ideas? Then with the best, then with the people that actually understand, right? Yeah. So amazing, yeah. right? But. I want to take a slight deviation here and ask you what kind of personal development books are you into, if any? Because here, here's what I think, right? All this hashtag improvement doesn't come by its own, right? You probably went out and be like, learned, read something, found some, I don't know, authors, if you will, that yeah. then resonated with you. And then that helped you down the path of like, oh my God, I want to improve. Well, why? Not because I'm egotistical, because that's then going to help me improve the people that I manage and work with. Yeah. So I'm really curious, what's your path there? And yeah. I hope. There's been a lot. Like I, I'm a big reader, so I go through a good mix of fiction and nonfiction both. Um, for nonfiction, a couple things, it, it's sort of like every point in my life, there have been certain books that spoke to me and partly it was the nature of like the crossroads I was at, right? So I remember coming at towards the end of college, I read this book called Now Discover Your Strengths. And they walk you through this whole strength finder quiz and you come out with a list of like your five biggest strengths. And the whole message of the book is, fuck getting your weaknesses in order, just power down on the strengths, like be the best of the five things you're really, really good at. I love that that was defining, like it, it gave me permission to stop being so timid about the things I wasn't good at. It just gave me permission to say, no, I'm not a detail person. Like I know a lot of engineers are, I'm not. So I'm gonna figure out a way to make myself an engineer without being a detail person. And like, there are ways to do it. So like, you just have to like, go like use the things you are good at to like leverage away from the things you're not. And that was super defining at that point in my career. Whereas other points in my career, I think when I started this business, I read a couple of books that were super defining too, that, that kind of like gave me permission to start a business, to do something kind of creative and out there. So anyway, I'll, I'll stop there. No, no, no. Awesome. Awesome. Awesome stuff. Uh, I already feel like this could be a series one to 10. Uh, however, you mentioned now the business part. Okay, great. Amazing. Right. So all this prior experience 
But hey, all of a sudden, boom, you are one and the only guy responsible if this makes it or it doesn't. Now tell me how it is to be in that kind of shoes. It's super, that was so disorienting. Like uh, going from, so being the first hire at a small company, you get a lot of autonomy, right? Like I was very, I was given like, as a non-technical, there, so there's a non-technical founder who hired me and said, look, you build the tech, right? And like figure out our team. Okay, great. I, that felt comfortable because I could ask her business questions and I just run the tech side. I kind of get, you know, that all makes sense. But then I step over into like, I'm full-time self-employed and nobody up the chain to tell me what's right and wrong, right? It was extremely weird. And like, I literally had had months where I'd, you know, have several nights in a row where I just like didn't sleep well because I'm just thinking like, there's so many ways I could do this. I don't know which way to go. Like, there's nobody who could tell me an answer. Like, what do I do? And like, so it's it's very strange. I think that was psychologically the biggest hurdle to get over starting a business versus working for someone else. Okay, awesome. And now, so the actual business that you started, um, so did you just like one day wake up and I'm like, be like, I'm gonna write a blog or something? Or how did that really? How did that? Yeah, well, start? it's it's actually kind of a lot like. <laughs> That the, my my world has has circled around a couple of different things several times in different ways over the course of my career. So uh, engineering has always been a part of it. I've always loved building things and tech and all that. And the other part that's always been there is writing. So I've always written in some form or fashion. So back I, all the way to high school, I was taking AP English because I just thought it was interesting. Um, and then like I got into college. I did like writing like for fun exercises with my roommates who are English majors. So we just get around in a circle and write short stories for with each other. Like it was nerdy stuff like that. And then, you know, got out of college and I wanted to just keep writing. And I just started doing on the side. I uh, started a student news blog when I was in school. And then, so then, you know, I go into engineering, I'm doing that for a while and I'm always writing on the side. So writing was always a part of like my just monthly practice. I'll call it like, it was something I did therapeutically. And because of that, I knew I liked it. And I knew I liked the, the, the sort of like the process and the, the creative outlet of it. And so as co- what happened was a sort of a forcing function that came on, I probably never would have started this business if not for COVID and the startup that I was working for is sort of like running out of, of funding at the moment that COVID hit and nobody's giving any money to startups anymore. So they started having a rough patch. I figure it's time for me to figure out what I'm doing next. I was like, I'm just going to write for a while and I'll get paid a few hundred bucks to write some articles that, you know, I've had some savings. I'll just see what happens. I'll do this for six months and then I'll get a job again. And um, again, pretty quickly, it just like picked up so much steam that I couldn't stop it. So I figured I'd just run with this. So it was not this like grand intention to build some kind of big business. There was no like, I, you know, a lot of people have, they, they obsess for months and years over having the right idea. Like it was literally something I like to do that I was going to do anyway. And then I just kind of like, I don't know, fell into a lot of good opportunities to make money doing it. And so there's a bit of luck, a bit of timing that was all right there and a bit of knowing people. I, I guess, you know, one thing we had talked about before this, like the overnight success, it was not overnight. I'd been writing for 10, 12 years and I had a huge network of people I'd worked with for 10 years in the tech field. So of course, when I wanted to go get jobs, I just talked to them and they all set me up with people. So all these cheat codes that I had layered on top of each other, I call, I call them cheat codes because like young entrepreneurs always ask me things like the young, young engineers that want to start a business. They're always like, how'd you get so like, how'd it grow so fast? And I'm like, well, 10 years of just doing a bunch of work for, for employers. And then eventually I was ready to go. So yeah. I don't yeah know. Totally. Okay. Uh, love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Um, here's the thing. If only, you know, we always like to say, Oh, in school, they don't teach us this and that, even though I have a master's, I will say ah, these days, even when I'm hiring, right. Yeah. I'm like, 
Oh, you sent a CV? Uh, by the way, you know, managers never read CVs. And they're like, what? what? I'm like, no, I'm, I'm not even kidding you. Tell me, where's your GitHub profile? Well, like, yeah. oh, I don't have it. Goodbye, thank you. I'm not even talking to you. So yeah. what I'm saying here is um, similar to this. Why don't we say or explain to people, kids, really, please learn how to write. That is yeah. So going to help you in your career, because if you are a very smart person, but two things, A, if you can't communicate that or verbally communicate it, just forget it. You can be the best person, the best dev, the best whatever, but if you can't get this knowledge across, yes, you're done. You're, 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 you're done. You're going to you know, do fine, but you're not going to make it, quote unquote, to this next level or whatever. Yeah. So writing well, oh my right? That's really key. So really also, I don't know if I said this in any other previous episodes, similarly, right? I mean, come on, I'm not even a native born, right? (laughs) Right. I I don't even know if you remember them. They were called hack hands, which was then bought by plural site. Yeah, sure. For a very long time, I then wrote for plural site. Here I am a guy in Croatia that, you know, never learned English properly, uh, was writing for plural site. And after that, also for DigitalOcean and whatnot. Yeah. Of course. Then, as you know, I stopped being a dev, so did my writing slowly, slowly subside. But again, well, I didn't just happen to know how to write it. I started my blog. Right. I can't not even remember. I want to say 2012 or something, right? Right. And over the course of the years, I wrote 400 plus blog posts. Two books that also came from them, like self-publishing. And then, yay, you made it. Oh, that was really like, you were lucky. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. Right. Like, right. So yeah, here, and again, what you're basically talking about also is something that Sean and I discuss a lot. This, the will to persevere or to push Mm -hmm. or to discipline yourself. Because if you're not going to discipline yourself, (laughs) trust me, no one else. Yeah, nobody else is. Yeah, there, right. So there's this, yeah, there's this other concept that that struck me as I was going out and starting to combine like the tech plus writing that that really like blew, that made me realize that I'd accidentally done something right again. Was that uh, there's a guy named Scott Adams who's the creator of Dilbert. If you read that comic strip, but yeah, so uh, Scott Adams writes some books too, and one of them he talks about like I think I don't can't remember what he calls it, but basically skill stacking. Where if you want to, let's say you want to be the best engineer in the world, you'd pick one tech stack, you'd be the best engineer at that one thing. Well, that makes you good at a very narrow subset of things. But what if you were like fairly good at three things, or really good at two things, or something like that? You just pick those that that and you go that way. And I think what I realized as I was starting Draft.Dev was like, I'm a pretty good writer and I'm a pretty good engineer and I'm pretty good at like small business because I've worked with all these small businesses. So like, I was like pretty good at those three things, but there aren't many people who stack those three skills. So you're now in this new class of like, yeah, there's like five or 10 of you in the world. So uh, it's just by like being pretty good instead of being really, really good, which again, I'm not a details person. So I don't want to be the best in the world at anything. I'm bored of that. Like I want to get okay at things that I like, like to learn about. So I think knowing that and giving myself, again, that was another like giving myself permission thing. And this might be helpful for any listeners who are like, I'm never going to be the best at whatever tech stack you're using and never going to be the best Go programmer or whatever. Like who cares? just pick five or six things and get really good at five or six, you're going to be the best in that combination of weird things. So it's writing, it's, it could be speaking, it could be um, 
given, I mean, these days it could be like TikTok. I don't know. There's probably somebody out there who's a really good engineer on TikTok who's making tons of money. I, I don't know. It's not me, but <laughs> it exists. Yeah. No, I love it. Uh, there's a saying uh, among uh, triathlonists, it, however, you know, that word is yeah, for no. <laughs> Why suck at one sport when you get in three, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I differently, really, actually, I read a blog post uh, that did focus on that, like from the triathlon perspective. Ha, I spelled it right now. Well, it's spelled, so whatever, you know. Um, but really what you said makes so much sense, right? Because each and every one of us is the best, if you will, at least at one thing. And then if you can couple or stack, as you said, something else as well, boom, there you have it, right? That's going to help you. So, okay, amazing, right? You started that, uh, started writing and, okay, how does the whole, you know, hiring people now going? Yeah, well, I was lucky that I had hired people before in my jobs. I Again, this goes back to the like, how, uh, you know, a lot of people glorify the young, uh, right out of college entrepreneur, right? Who, who you know, comes out of the Mark Zuckerberg type story of Facebook, which that's a whole other story right now. But they glorify the whole, like, you know, you just go out of college, you have no experience, you just work really hard. Like the truth is, if you meet like a hundred entrepreneurs, you'll meet like zero to one of those kind of people. And you'll meet 99 people who started a business in their forties or something. And so I think what, was helpful starting this business. Like I wasn't afraid of hiring people. I'd had to hire and fire plenty of people. It's, I mean, you know, there's good and bad to it. I had systems that I'd learned from other people and mentors of like how to hire effectively, how to vet candidates. I wasn't just like making it up completely blind. I had a lot of idea too, from joining as like the first employee at a couple companies about like what it takes to kind of like the nuts and bolts of setting up a business, which is really, I mean, boring and like tedious stuff, but like somebody's got to do it in the first few months and years. So like, you know, the admin tasks, like filing all the right paperwork, who who do you like, who do you talk to about like getting insurance for a business? Like I've never done any of that. You know, it's like, it's obvious in hindsight, but at the time I didn't, I wouldn't have known if I hadn't been in these situations before. So I think there was a lot of that stuff that was really helpful. Um, and then uh, obviously like a little bit of the, like, well, my personal experience with writing had led me in writing for these tech companies had led me to int introduce me to a lot of other people. And so I met a lot of writers along the way. I met a lot of editors along the way. And in fact, one of the women who was like the, my favorite editor to work with, when I started draft, and I needed an editor. I reached out to her. She had some freelance availability and she's now our like editorial director. And she leads, a, you know, the whole editing team and, and, you know, review team. And so like, uh, yeah, I mean, these connections again, like, I couldn't have built them overnight from like start. It was all just built in the last 10 years of work. Amazing. I, I, I love stories like this where, you know, now, now when you're successful, you come and say, well, you know what? This was really a several years worth of effort combined now together. And now it's great versus yeah. all what people like to hear these days. Just, you know, get this course overnight. Yeah, you're right. good. Just, Please. Oh, that kills me because it's so, it's so naive to think that something like starting a business, a very complex process that has lots of variables could be broken down into one follow this method type thing. Like that's just not how real life works. Like if you're an engineer, like yeah, this always struck me about like junior to mid-level engineers, they read about design patterns and they think to themselves, oh, well, we should just implement the whole app in design patterns. And I'm like, in theory, that sounds great. Right. But in reality, let me tell you as someone who's written enough code adhering to strict design patterns that it is kind of a fool's errand until like 
yes, they can help guide you a bit, but they're ne never be dogmatic about it. Like always be pragmatic enough to step back and say, is it even worth doing a repository pattern for this? Like, this is like, you know, two lines of code. Like it might change tomorrow because the business has no idea what they're doing. Like senior engineers start to get that context and they start to like pull out a little bit. Junior mid-level people, they tend to be like stuck in the, follow the prescriptive path. And so I think the same applies to these business courses or tell you how to like learn anything in 30 days, whatever. Like, yeah, you can take it. Maybe you'll pick something up, but please don't buy into the, like, this is it. You've just got the, the formula. It doesn't, life doesn't work that way. <laughs> Love it. One awesome answer that I once got um, senior level guy. And I said, TDD or not? He's like, great idea didn't work. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. I just actually just wrote a piece just for fun about uh, like the, the, the sort of pros and cons and pitfalls of, of testing and strict testing. And like a lot of the people I talked to were very senior level engineering people, more experienced than myself, even that ultimately the same thing, like testing is great and it has good, good use cases, but like there are limits and you should know those limits and you should know how to like caveat everything you do. Like it shouldn't be this, this like you know, pure, it must be unit tested or it must be acceptance tested or it must be whatever. Like, there's no must. It's all like depends on what you're doing. Here's what hits uh, solely devs in the face when you tell them, look, wow, amazing. 70% test coverage. You must be awesome. But guess what? This sucks. And they're like, why? It's not making any money. Right, 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 right. right? And that... <laughs> That's when, you know, expectations hit the reality. And then, so yeah. my, my approach, MVP, like Eric Reese wrote about it 20 years ago. Nowadays, yeah. we read it and it's like, this is common sense. Well, trust me, even before that waterfall process, it was not common sense. Yeah. That was revolutionary when the guy wrote about it, right? Um, so yeah, but anyways, 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 here's-, here's But some, some companies like to kind of like go on that, I actually think it's interesting. Some companies separate engineers from the business like too much in a way. So, and this can kind of just be a nature of being in a big organization where like, you know, you don't really know how, what you're building ties to end revenue, but like some companies just don't do a good job showing engineers that like the thing you built actually has a bottom line effect, or it actually affects like something that really matters. They don't really let those metrics bleed through into engineering. And I think that's a disservice because the engineers get this impression that, oh, I'm building my little cathedral here. Like there's, it doesn't matter what's on the outside as long as my little world is perfect. That's like, I mean, to your point, exactly. Like that, that's just kind of foolish. It's not, you're, you're missing the bigger picture here. Like what's the goal that we're doing? Totally agree. And then, and again, if you're in a corporation when you set a certain goal and then everybody knows towards which goal they're working for. And then they know if we hit that, we get the bonuses this year. Yeah. We don't, you know? Yeah. yeah. Anyways, so tell me this. Okay. So, uh, as I looked at draft.dev, right? You know, technical marketing content for software startups. Yep. Now I'm gonna play devil's advocate here. I'm a startup, startups are being sold left and right today. Why would I even need content? I'm obviously playing devil's advocate here because I know, but I wanna hear you what are you gonna say. Yeah, I mean, there's a good, I, like I'm pretty honest with clients too. Like if if you feel like sales, like maybe there's actually clients we've, we've talked to who like, um, sales works really well. Like cold outbound sales works because maybe they're reaching directors of engineering. Those people maybe reply, reply to certain emails. So they figured that out. It works really well. Like why write blog posts? Why write tutorials? Why write stuff like that when they've got an engine going? Like, well, if you're a small company and you only need one or two channels, then don't worry about it. Don't do this yet. But at some point, what happens in every company's life cycle is they say, 
okay, so sales is a it is kind of, or this kind of cold outreach and advertisement based sales is a put money in, get money out situation. But what could we do to invest and put money in today and get exponentially more out of it in two years or three years? And that's exactly what content is. So if you kind of like you talked about DigitalOcean, it's a great example of this because they just went public and that a lot of their traffic and interest is based on developer writing. That's just stuff you and I have written for DigitalOcean for a few hundred bucks that they paid us, right? And essentially, you know, they paid, uh, I'm sure they paid editors and tech reviewers. There's, there's a lot of money that goes into that. But ultimately, they're now reaping the benefits for years to come down the line for this piece of content they paid for once. And so when you look at it that way, it makes perfect sense that like companies will eventually do content as a long-term investment. It's just a question of when it's worth investing in. Awesome. Love it. Love it. Uh, here's, okay. So, you know, maybe, maybe that we answer the question because we both have a, a actual experience with this. So someone may be thinking now, okay, great. You know, I kind of like wrote essays in my high school or university because there you had to do it. So maybe I'm going to try this on the side, right? So what can I expect, right? Uh, back in the day when I used to do this, th there was a common, like, uh, if you will, not even a range, it was like known, you know, it was known Khaleesi. 100 at uh, 100, 1,000 words, include, well, if you knew how to negotiate, including code or not including code, 100 bucks. That was uh -huh. you know, a standard, a golden standard, if you will. How much did that change along with you know, the whole industry? Yeah. I, I obviously, you know, it must be some kind of a range, but did that also move yeah. as the salaries moved in general yeah. today? For sure. For sure. Um, so what we see typically, and our rates are in line with this, are between three hundred per three hundred dollars for a fifteen hundred word article up to five hundred, six hundred dollars for a fifteen hundred word article, um, and that's usually like that's the payout to the writer, to the editor, or sorry, just to the writer, to the engineer. Um, and then on top of that, companies will pay for an editor, maybe a tech reviewer, maybe you know a couple lines, a couple different editors, depending on how complex their process is, right? So I know DigitalOcean, at least when I wrote with them, they had several people review the piece before it actually went live. I think that's that's pretty critical. I mean, we do that with our pieces now. We have editors and tech reviewers and all that. So um, the yeah, the the whole like all-in cost can be, you know, a thousand bucks, two thousand bucks, depending on um, how much you put in there. Other things that companies do that you know you don't think about can be like promoting the content. So for example, some companies even will pay to add, run ads right to that blog post or that tutorial just to get some initial traffic and maybe some shares going. And then they'll kind of let it pick up on its own organic uh, after that. So there's all sorts of ways you can spend more money to get more out of content. But at the same time, um, yeah, for writers, it's gone up. I mean, 300 to 500 is pretty typical. Uh, if you're... If you start like getting your own individual clients that you can do like one-on-one -on -one work, you can push that rate even higher. But um, there's a limit to how much volume you can do as a soloist, right? So that was exactly what I ran into. Like I started freelancing as a writer. I picked my rates up a little higher and higher. And I think I got to somewhere around seven or $800 an article. And what happens is I have as many clients as I can possibly, you know, write articles for, and I'm making this much per article. I've just realized my cap of income, right? Like that is as much as you can make as a software engineer writer. So the next step for me was like, okay, there's more demand. So what do I do? I start a business. I start hiring other writers and I start hiring editors. Like it's a slow progression. I mean, not, it hasn't been that slow, but like it's been this gradual progression of like just layering one more level in as we get more need. Awesome. And now a cautionary tale here because people may think like, whoa, wait, it was 100. Now it's like 300 per article, uh, 1000 words. Come on, I can bang that out in, you know, two hours. 
So that's 150 per hour. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <you> know, <laughs> good luck. I mean, good it luck. depends. Yeah, it depends. Like we, I've had, you know, we have, um, there's, a, there's a few variables you can think about. If you really do want to go like full-time as a freelance technical writer, you absolutely can do it. Um, the more engineering experience you had in the real world beforehand, the better you're going to be because you're going to be a lot faster at things. Also, you can get away from writing tutorials, which are sort of the most hour consumption for, for dollar. Whereas the higher level stuff, like say you want a, a company commissions you to write like an architecture piece that takes some real world experience about building architecture. Um, you might be able to, if you're an experienced architect with five years, 10 years of experience doing a software architecture, you might be able to bang out an e-commerce architecture article in two to four hours. Sure. And they might pay you five or 600 bucks for it. That's pretty good. But you kind of go down to the like the easier stuff to do, like the hands-on tutorials that are step-by-step, -step. it could take, it's, I've spent eight to 16 hours easy on a $200 tutorial. So that is, that's where you don't make the money. You know, you gotta, you gotta kind of be judicious about what makes sense for you. Love it. This so aligns with my experience. It's, it's unbelievable, right? Yeah. Now I'll say there's other reasons to write a long tutorial. I mean, so a lot of our writers that, that do the, those kinds of pieces, they're trying to showcase what they know in a way that they can publicly share. So all of our writing is credited to the author. We don't do ghostwriting for clients. So that means the writer is maybe a mid-level engineer who's trying to showcase they know React Native, but their, their job doesn't let them show any code, right? So great, they can go write a piece on React Native for one of our clients, they get paid some money and it gets their name on there. So whenever they apply for that next job, they have a proof point. I used to always put on my resume, like here's a link to an article I wrote about each line item on my resume. So it's like, Carl knows PHP and Laravel, here are like links to articles of me writing about those topics. So that there's not like, there's almost like, I was always trying to skip the coding tests because I hate those. But like, you know, it's like, look, I do know this stuff. I'm not just full of, you know, full of shit here. And I think that's really helpful at those middle stages of your career when you're trying to stand out from the everybody who says, oh, yeah, I know JavaScript and React and whatever. It's like, well, yeah, and here's an article. Like, let's take it a level further. Not just that. Here's an article with two million views. Yeah, Ooh. yeah. Well, and there's right. Like, if you ever do freelance work or say you want to, I mean, I've gotten job offers from articles I've written often. It, 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 you know, now I've been writing for 10 years. So of course there's so many little seeds planted that the stuff comes in every couple of weeks. But like, even if you're just getting started, you might find like you hit a, a, a spot with somebody and you've got an article out there that clients are coming to you and saying, or uh, potential clients are coming to you and saying like, could we hire you for some freelance work? Or could we hire you to, to be our next engineer? We really like what you said here. So it's absolutely like this it's this multiplier that you can't fully know the potential of each piece you're writing until you get it out there and just do it repeatedly for a long time. But again, it's like that, like content for the company is going to build in value over time. Writing kind of does the same thing for the author. If you're on that piece, it's like you're getting your name out there and potentially millions of people will see it over time, or at least hundreds of thousands of the right people, which might matter more anyway. Correct. Love it. This is basically goes or falls into the bucket of building a brand for yourself. Because again, let's go back to you can be the best developer in the world, but if the world doesn't know about it, ah, good luck. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Love it. This is great. This is great. Uh, cool. I mean, so in your really vast experience, right, you probably picked up a few, you know, let's say learnings, right, that you would like to teach your younger self, right? What yeah. kind of those learnings that immediately come to mind would you yeah. share with us? The biggest one is that I always say to, to everybody who's like earlier on in their engineering career, but I think this applies to any career, is like spend some time intentionally focusing on 
meeting people and staying in touch with people somehow, whatever that means for you. So for me, I'll tell you how I do this because I'm a, I'm a nerd for organization. It's one of my strengths that I lean into. Uh, I have a big spreadsheet of people that I want to stay in touch with. And every week I have a reminder to myself to go look at the spreadsheet. Who's at the top of the list that I need to email and just check in with. There's about 50, 60 people on it. I rotate people in and out as we kind of, you know, have good relationships or maybe fall out for a while, just to, you know, out of contact. And so I just try to keep it organic and just say, Hey, what's going on? I know it's been a few months since we talked, just want to see how the family is, whatever. Maybe, you know, back when, before COVID days, we'd get coffee or we, you know, meet up in real life. Uh, when I'm in the same town as somebody on that list, I can, you know, let them know. And I've got a, maybe a place to stay. So there's all sorts of value you get out of that just from like a relationship point of view, but also like a lot of those people, again, became my first clients. They became my, they're my next job. Like I guarantee you, if I ever had to shut this thing down and start over and go get a job, which I'd be fine doing, I'd talk to everybody on that list and just be like, what's going on? Any chance you're hiring? You know, and it wouldn't like, the thing is that when you do that, you get to skip so many barriers that the cold applications, the cold applicants do. Like, you, I know that like there may still be a technical test. There may still be some hoops to go through, but like having that warm in where somebody says, yeah, Carl is a trusted entity. He's been staying in touch with me for five years. Like that's incredible, right? Like that's so much more valuable than the random person off the street. who has got a degree from Harvard or whatever. Like, I don't have that. I gotta, I gotta do what I got, you know? Like, so that's my big, big thing from my career. It's been like, it's okay if you're not the best engineer, if you're okay at keeping in touch with people and being authentically like interested in keeping those relationships going. Love it. Okay. This is, I mean, this is just great. Cause it's, true. I think we speak the same language about a lot of this stuff, right? <laughs> totally. I'm like nodding the whole time. Right. Yeah. Okay. This is awesome. Cool. Great. Um, here's now I'm thinking on the fly and I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> what else could we talk about? Because again, honestly, we could talk from what I, uh, yeah, yeah, whatever. And actually, so, you know, I actually do have one question. Okay, great. Written content. Amazing. I love it. I'm also a reader, avid reader, if you will, 60 plus books per year, blah, blah, whatever. Right. Oh, nice. Yeah, That's not, impressive. Not that I have a badge because of it, but whatever. No, because I like doing that. Right? right. I even wrote a blog post about the math. I kid you not the math behind reading 30 books per year and how easy it is. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. But it seems like these days it's easier to scroll TikTok or whatever it is that's hot these days for yeah. three hours or two hours than to read for 25 minutes. And that shit's over. addicting, right? Uh, it's tough. Like I honestly, I find myself falling into that. I hate to say it. Like I, I've, uh, there's been months where I like don't get through more than one book and I'm like, Oh, that, that's a, like, I hate that I just like spent all that time on Twitter. Like, <laughs> didn't help very, me at all. Very great feedback, not feedback, or tip there is probably you're doing some kind of or maybe, you know, we, all of us should do some kind of form of exercise, right? And we all hate it, right? We're not again. Yeah. Well, how about this? I love Audible. Audible is the best yeah. that I have ever done in my life. And I like listening Same. to it. But yeah. here's from uh, James Clear. You probably heard of him. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing dude, right? We had him actually on the podcast. Here's what he says. Uh, habit stacking. How about this? You get to listen to Audible only when you're going for a run. So you hate running, but you like Audible and yep. the running is good for you, right? Yep. It's yep. amazing, right? So it's a, Those mental tricks, I love it. That's like, maybe, maybe I, that I'm... Yeah. I'm a big on those kind of mental tricks. Like I have a, I, one, I just started, this is, I, so I'm a new parent, my son's two. So of course, and I'm a new business owner. So of course my, like 
keeping track of like running and working out like way down in the tubes, you know, like I'm not doing any of that. So I, my trick to myself is I hired a virtual personal trainer. Now my wife asked me, what does she do exactly? And I said, literally she texts me my like workout plan every day. That is it. Like it is so stupid, simple, but knowing that there's someone there on the other end of the line, who's going to say at the end of the week, Carl, you did all five of your workouts. Like for some reason, there's that psychology. Plus I paid for it. So I'm paying this person some money and that's like, well, I got to do it. <laughs> Here's what I say. Whatever works. Yes. Whatever yeah. Whatever works. So here's my actual question now. So reading is great. Writing is great. How do podcasts fit into all this, right? That's so the sort of unfiltered, unedited, and I'll be honest here, right? I mean, we do podcasts and everything. Personally, I like audiobooks way better than a podcast because mm -hmm. I could listen to a podcast of an hour and get three things out. Of course, there are podcasts where I'm listening and I'm like, oh my God, writing down notes. I have no clue yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, this is all new. Like NFTs, hashtag anybody, what was that, right? So anyways, what do you think about that, right? How, yeah. how is that changing or not, or just adding to the whole landscape, really? It's hard for me to say this in like a general answer. Like, I don't know how, what appeals to them about, I don't know what everybody is appeal like what brings everybody in for podcasts. I know what brings me in for podcasts personally. So a lot of it is listening to people who are maybe a level or two above where I want to be or where I am today and just hearing how they think about things and talk and also knowing that it's possible. Like one thing that podcasting really does is it puts a personality to this person because they're not like in this filtered format, like you say with a book where like if I wrote a book and I read it out loud, it would be very, it'd be a little different than this, right? I wouldn't have stuttered over that last sentence. And I wouldn't have said shit a couple of times, you know, like there's, there's a lot of like uh, colloquialisms that I wouldn't have thrown in there. This is like, you're going to see my personality. You're going to see your personality a little, and that gives you a little bit of like, Oh, okay. Nicholas is a real person and he's going through these struggles or he did this. Like, why can't I do that? So for me, it was listening to a lot of people's podcasts who started businesses in the last few years. And as someone who had never done that before and was just thinking like, this is really hard. I don't know where to go. I have no direction, no boss anymore. Hearing them struggle with the same things gave me like this kind of, again, this permission and this thought that like, oh, okay, this is normal. Like, it's okay that I don't know everything. It's okay. That's what everybody feels. And just knowing that like they had done it and it was possible was really helpful for me personally. Okay. Amazing. Okay. Amazing. Awesome. Uh, so here's the thing. Here's the thing. Not to, not to try to, you know, drag it onward or anything, but I would really like to learn because that's the question I like asking everybody. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, books on starting the business that some of them helped you. So please give me this. And you also mentioned uh, fictional stuff. Please give me one or two, the, the, the ones that immediately come to mind on the, hey, how to start a business or, you know, whatever of those kind of books. Yeah. And then one on here. And I'm not going to lie. I'm also going to give you the same, right? Awesome. Perfect. I love it. I love getting book recommendations. I'm already right doing okay. So um, starting the business, uh, the big things I needed were, were permission to do it. And the fact that like uh, it is a somewhat, so starting a business, unlike maybe taking a new job is typically like a bit of a creative pursuit. In addition to being a business, like nuts and bolts and math thing, like there's also just like this 
You have to make something up that doesn't exist. So um, I read this book called Big Magic, which is by the uh, Elizabeth Gilbert, the author of uh, Eat, Pray, Love. Never read Eat, Pray, Love. It might be great. I don't know. But somebody recommended this book. And it's just an autobiographical story of her journey to becoming a writer. What's fantastic about it is it's, it mirrors exactly what we've been saying this whole time, which is she's been like 10 or 20 years in obscurity, banging out books that never got anywhere, just working as a professor on the stuff, like, you know, just like grinding is what I would call this in, you know, American terms. I don't know if that, that term gets used everywhere, but uh, she, and then she just talks like it was just doing that for 10 or 20 years. And then eventually she got, I'm not lucky because it's not luck. She had worked so hard at it, but it was like, she was in the right places at the right times to say this experience that, that resonated with so many people. So that one's great. The other one was similar. It's like war of art. Uh, very similar vein of like uh, inspirational, but also just like about the grind of it, like that you've got to just put in some work and you're going to do it for years and years. And eventually you'll get better at it and you won't see those results overnight, but you will if you stick with it. So those are both my nonfiction ones. They're really great at that point in my life. Um, have you read either of those? You were, you were smiling. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Which they're unconventional. If you're an engineer, they're not like your typical engineering books oh, at all. <laughs> so personally, like, I think it was around the time when, uh, so I always liked to read, but fiction, right? Yeah. And then, again, I can't remember the actual breaking point, if you will, where, when I discovered, quote unquote, these personal development books. And really, that then led me on the trajectory of like, oh, wow, okay, so there's way more than I could do and you yeah. know, learn and all that, which is not just like... Uh -huh. I'm going to learn this programming language and I'm going to be so great. Well, no. How about you learn how to present? How about you learn how to, well, make yourself go, as I like to say, kilometer further because miles are overrated. <laughs> right. Uh, so yeah, both of them. Uh, how about the fiction one? So fiction, man, this is tough because there's just so many different, I, I try to cover a lot of different genres and I kind of go through these phases. Right now I'm in a science fiction phase. So I've been reading these like collections of, best new sci-fi short stories. I really like short stories too, because like, they're kind of like this, like it all wraps up in an, in like a night, you know, you can just like sit down and read the thing like in an hour and that's like, it. it's just wraps up and it resolves. And that's kind of fun, you know, sometimes. So I've been reading these short story uh, anthologies from like modern fiction and or modern science fiction. And it's really interesting to see the genre change. Like one thing too, if you, if you read a genre over time, like I, I like a lot of uh, Philip K. Dick stuff and he's kind of a sixties sci-fi writer or if you go back further to, I don't remember some of the, the old school sci-fi ones from the 20s and 30s, but um, it's interesting to see how that genre has changed, but also what stayed the same about it and kind of like see that evolution from a, a high level. I think lately what's interesting in the modern sci-fi is like how much it, it's it, sci-fi always mirrors society that it's, it's written in. That's kind of the point. It's like you, you take the society you're written in, then you shoot it forward a thousand years or whatever, something funny. And you kind of say something about society today by talking about the future. And um, that, that's totally true in these. And it's interesting to see how people see today's problems, whether that's problems like global warming or racism or um, sexism or whatever, uh, human rights. And then they zoom, zoom those forward and you know, thousand years in the future and put it in some sci-fi landscape. And then you think about it in this different way that kind of like, oh yeah, that's what they're saying, you know? So anyway, those have been fun lately. Okay, amazing, great. So uh, I didn't lie, I'm gonna tell you mine. Yes. One that I re specifically remember that literally changed my view on a lot of business stuff was, even though he's not, he's sort of a shady guy when I actually later uh, looked into him, uh, the book is called uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. By yeah, 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 yeah. 
Absolutely. I literally stopped in my tracks that back then I was still commuting to the job and everything, you know, and I'm like, wait, I'm that guy that he's talking about. I'm yeah. you know, living in this rat race and everything. And if I like never start my own business or anything, I'm never you know going to because, hey, I'm going to admit it. I always wanted to have money. Right. Just simple as that. Right. Yep. So yeah, that, that book, like literally boom. And again, yeah, in the, the way it tells you to separate the like lifestyle, like to the rich looking lifestyle versus the actual wealth. That was really interesting to me. And like, maybe cause like when you're, I grew up somewhat poor. And so I saw rich looking people and I assumed they were very rich when in reality they were keeping up a lifestyle that was necessary to live in the suburbs and have the, the big SUV and all that. Like, who knows? They could have been hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. Like I love that, that whole aspect of it too. The rich dad, poor dad and contrasting them anyway yeah. living up with the joneses or yes. keeping up with the joneses yes. right uh so that and then uh i'll give you a few more but then going back the fiction book one that i always 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 recommend and the freaking writer didn't finish the third book but anyways name of the wind by patrick rothfuss okay oh my if that doesn't hook you in i want to say 50 pages just throw it away whatever but but really like and that's fantasy that's fantasy yeah. and i've realized even though like one would expect science fiction right yeah tried it yeah you know i don't know i'm a more of a like a trekkie than a than the star wars guy but whatever sure. voyager yes uh, uh tng of course uh, picard the best but really didn't you know like oh my god i can't wait what you know what's next with this fantasy and specifically sword and sorcery supposedly mm. boom yes that's just my genre now, to zoom back and uh, give you, um, like, of course, I have a blog post on this where I, like, have 40 books on, you know, you Same, should, yeah. if you want to improve, read these books. It's only 40 books. And then yeah. you'll be like, well, it, it's going to take me 10 years. No, it's not. It's going to take you just under a year. if you. And even whatever. if it did take you 10 years, at the end of the day, that's only 10 years out of your life. You got a long time to go, right? <laughs> exactly. And uh, one that I, that, I, that I basically go through all of my managers it's called the coaching habit unbelievable oh, yeah, book, yeah. book that gives yeah. seven essential questions to have a meaningful and impactful conversations right and one that personally made me help me really called leadership and self-deception okay. uh it's called it, it's it's talking about putting people in the boxes when you don't even know that you put someone in the box and whatever he says right whatever they if they don't fall in that box you're just going to say it's an anomaly, right? Versus yeah. what if we actually listen and behave and act with people as they are acting, not assuming mm -hmm. things. That was like really a mind opening. And then again, like really, I read a lot of in this. And here's how I will conclude. That's why I mentioned Napoleon books, uh, Napoleon Hill's book uh, of... Uh, uh, Think and Grow Rich. Think and Grow Rich. One of the other one, yeah. Now I will say, oh my God, like all the new age books that I read, more or less rehashes of that. Yeah. But yeah. I totally get it. And I'm not judging because generations change. Mm -hmm. What worked in the 20s, 40s, whatever is not going to work for Gen Z, right? Yeah. What worked for us boomers or whatever we are, right? It's not working for them. So whatever book, this big magic, as you said, I also remember, wow, it really, it, it, I understood it. Yeah. Right? So whatever works that gets this message across, 
whatever works. Yeah, right? And I would also say like one of the, the, the hesitations I hear from a lot of very uh, right-brained entre- or engineers, you know, the ones who are very like, logical, it's like, oh, well, these books are just fluff. It's just make you feel good, right? Like, I mean, maybe that it, maybe it is just words on a page, but at the same time, you become what you surround yourself with. And so if you surround yourself with that level of positivity and belief, self-belief, you, you can do a lot more than you think. Now, whether you want to, or you want to just keep yourself in your box, that's up to you, you know, like, but I, I think that it, there's something to be said. It's kind of like if you surround yourself with people who are like very negative and limit you, what, you know, each other can do. They talk about how the world's out to get them. That's what you're going to become. The books are going to be the same way. So you've got to like, it's, it's worth giving them a shot, even when it doesn't feel like it's logical to you for whatever reason. No, I love it. But here's the thing, approach, these people should approach it with open mind. Uh, so as, as Carol Dweck uh, calls it, a growth mindset. And not yes, a, yeah. I see you're nodding. So yeah, yeah, uh, I've read that one. Yep. So uh, because then, and if, so as you said, hey, you said you, you had steps in the book. Well, guess what? Some people just audible. Oh yeah, I listened to the book. Well, did you do the steps? Well, no, uh, not the point, right? right? Not, not right. the point. Anyways, really, I see we could go on here yeah, yeah. <laughs> sometime, especially in this book section. Right. right we could probably compare books all day and, and night. <laughs> totally. I'm going to obviously send you this link because, you know, they're yeah. affiliate links. I'm joking. Yeah. <laughs> uh, cool. Okay. So as a wrap up, thank you very much. This was unbelievably awesome. Uh, so again, uh, we didn't even say, you know, draft.dev uh Hey, I'm a non-native, but I'm going to try this. D-R-A-F-T dot D-E-V. Boom. Hey, there you have it, right? Yeah. Go, uh, yeah. people. Check it out. If you need content for your software startup. Yeah. Or if you want to write. I think more likely in this audience, it's going to be people that might want to write on the side. Um, we're always looking for writers. You go to draft.dev slash write or search for write on the page. It's going to be down at the bottom. Uh, we're... I mean, we have a ton, like just tons of content coming in from clients that that want interesting engineering takes on things. So it could be a fun way to make some money and just do something on the side, like to to expand your horizons into like new areas. Or yeah, it's very flexible. Like if you don't find anything you like, then whatever, no problem. <laughs> awesome. I love it. I wish you all the best. And hey, I hope that in some months in your spreadsheet and I hope that I get in that spreadsheet and we do it again in a few months. I love it. Yes, definitely, Nicola. Thanks so much for the time. This was fun. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the DevThink Podcast. You can contact us at info at DevThink. That's D-E-V-T-H dot I-N-K. Now, go accomplish something.